So hello, welcome to another discussion. Um, before we get started, if you don't mind introducing yourself a little bit uh, for the audience, and then we can go into your article. Sure, my name's Andy Higginbottom. Um, I live in London. Um, if you like a lifelong international solidarity activist, um, I recently retired about a year ago. Until then, I was an associate professor at Kingston University in London. The uh, main areas of my political activity are solidarity uh, with social movements uh, and social re political resistance in Colombia and in Latin America. I also uh, work with comrades in South Africa who are fighting in particular British imperialism and uh, comrades from Tamil Elam and their supporters uh, from Sri Lanka. So that's a sort of broad range of my interest. At the moment, I'm working on uh, Marxist capital uh, from the point of view of the super exploitation of labor and how that uh, concept uh, would require sort of like a development of Marx's core mm. theory of surplus value, basically. Mm. That, that's who I am and what I do. Excellent. Yeah, so those are exactly the kind of topics I'd, I'd like to discuss. And I came about your work through researching on the super exploitation of labor in South Africa. So I, it, I owe definitely a debt of gratitude to you as well for your work on that subject. But today I'm, I'm interested in potentially in introducing some concepts to our listeners who may not be familiar with them or may find them useful in terms of a, a furthering of this analysis of uh, super exploitation or of imperialism. Um, you have a great article that I was reading recently. I, I'm uh, taking a class now in university on primitive accumulation. And I was reading your article recently on enslaved labor in the Americas and primitive accumulation. And just to begin, I think the fascinating aspect of the discussion you have is that you begin by discussing and then rejecting the Brenner thesis, what, what's come to be known as the Brenner thesis, I think. Uh, and that's something that maybe we can begin by introducing that thesis to the audience, like what exactly Brenner put forward in the 1970s, the specific context of it. Um, and you have a great discussion of it where you say that uh, to argue as Brenner does that not only the origins, but also the essence of the capitalist mode of production is uniquely found in the social relations and class struggles of its emergence in early stages in England, reduces the epistemological role of the colony to no more than an illumination or reflection back on this essence. That I think is a great point of departure to discuss first exactly what Brenner does in doing this uh, epistemological centering of European class struggle, and then to discuss as you do the way in which that limits our understanding of primitive accumulation, the transition to capitalism. So let's take it from that first point. What exactly is the Brenner thesis? What is he proposing? And why is it problematic for our analysis of colonialism and capitalism? Sure. I mean, the, the broader context is uh, how did capitalism come about? And what are, if you like, the main levers of the emergence of capitalism? And in very broad terms, I mean, one can accentuate the emergence of capitalism in England and in Western Europe in terms of the class struggles and class relations here. And or one can look at, especially from 1492, we are on the day after 
Columbus's supposed discovery in the letter commerce mm -hmm. of uh, Latin America, 12th of October, 530 years ago. So the other side of the discussion is how much the colonial project was also part and uh, parcel, if you like, of the uh, assertion of capitalism in Western Europe. And that debate, you know, actually precedes Brenner. Um, it was a debate, for example, um, between Sweezy and Dobb back in the 40s and 50s. And, it, you know, it, it's an objectively necessary debate to be had. It's a crucially important debate. I mean, Brenner's particular thesis focuses on the emergence of capitalism in England as a result of class struggles in agriculture around about the 15th century, 15th to 16th century. And if you look at what he does there, it's not wrong. I mean, he has got a point. I mean, there were, clearly there were class struggles in feudalism. Mm -hmm. And in the end, they helped give rise to the formation of capitalist class. So, I mean, on, on the specific thesis, I, I'm not particularly critical of him. It's more to do with the um, significance and weight and sort of primary priority which is given to that. Because in actual fact, it, what happened in England fed into a whole series of connected processes. And I completely agree with Marx's very sort of clear summary of this, which is these sort of different levers of primitive accumulation, as he called it, come into systematic combination. These different moments of capital accumulation come into systematic combination in England at the end of the 17th century. So that tells you two things, right? One is, that they'd already been going on for a little while before, and they had been gone on for two hundred years or so by then, in terms of what the Iberian European powers, you know, they were looting basically other parts of the world. And that's one side of it. And the other side is, okay, so what happens after? What is the systemic nature of this combination? Well, it involves the British states, it involves the Navy, it involves the Bank of England, it involves military power used for mercantile interests around the globe. So from then you're talking about the 18th century, right? And what you have is a massive expansion around about 1600s onwards of the plantation economy. So the question then is, is the, is, uh, the emergence of capitalism only about this sort of particular uh, class struggle in England, or is it actually part of a much broader canvas which interconnects the internal and the external, where the amassing of capital abroad was actually one side of the picture. So, I mean, again, to, to cite Marx, he's, he's quite clear. There's some sort of textual argument about this, but I think it's just nitpicking, right? I mean, Marx actually says, you have to have two things to have capitalism, right? It's a class relation between capital and labor, right? So on the one hand, wealth has to be, um, accumulated in a form of money wealth, which acts as expanding money, i.e. capital, on the one hand, right? And on the other hand, you need a labor market. And in particular, Marx will stress free labor. So he's talking about free labor in a double sense, that, uh, what were formerly peasants uh, separated from the land. They can't work for themselves and survive. So they have to work for somebody else. So they have to sell their labor power. And this is the emergence of wage labor. Okay, so um, there is, a, when we come to the theory rather than historical description, which I'm, I'll sort of expand on a bit later on, I think Marx himself is one sided on this, I have to say. Uh, but I think Brenner 
is, I mean, not just one-sided, he's completely lopsided, right? And what he is, is one of the key theoreticians of what I would call Eurocentric Marxism, right? What the concept of Eurocentric Marxism, it privileges the experiences of the emergence of the working class and capitalism and their relation in Europe as being the uh, universal experiences of the emergence of capitalism, right? So they become the most important norm. And this is the characteristic feature of Eurocentric Marxism. So what is capitalism? Capitalism is wage labor and it's machinery. Okay, so these are sort of two of the main ideas of uh, the Brenner School. Um, so wage labor does not include enslaved labor. So by definition, Brenner calls the plantations of the Caribbean, of South and North America, and elsewhere in the world, actually, these plantations were, by his definition, pre-capitalist. Okay, and of course, the other side to it is is that there wasn't much of a technological revolution. There weren't big machines, certainly even in the cotton plantations in the mid nineteenth century, on large-scale machine production. Right? So that can't be capitalism either, right? So this must be pre-capitalism. Right um, now, the debate he has uh, it was with Wallerstein. So from this position, he engages in debate and critique of what Wallerstein argued from what was called the world systems perspective. Now, what Wallerstein argues is that capitalism basically started with the conquest of the Americas. And what you have from that time onwards is a world market. And so what you have is um, the merchants were capitalists basically, and they were, you know, looting and so on in order to make more money. I mean, it wasn't for any, any other particular reason. They were clearly racist and misogynistic and all the rest of it, but actually that was all driven by the money-making. So he's, he's, if you like, a circulationist. He's saying basically uh, that um, the world market is the critical characteristic of the emergence of capitalism. So then what you have basically is a debate because uh, that's exactly what Brenner said. He said, you know, well, Wallerstein's position doesn't look at the social relations of production. It's a circulationist argument. It's only looking at trade. It's only looking at once things are produced, how they move around in the world. But what we need to be looking at, of course, is as Marxists anyway, are the social relations of production. And actually, he's right again about that. It's just that he misplaces the point. If we're going to look at the social relations of production, let's look at them. And not only in England in the 16th century, right? Let's look at them under this mercantile system, which, you know, was going on for a couple of hundred years. Certainly in the case of England, I mean, it was the, the dominant system from this point in the late 17th century for the next hundred years or so. So then then let's look at the social relations of production in the plantations, you know, in, in the colonized and enslaved part of the world, because they were also part of the system in that time. So I think that's more or less, uh, I mean, there, there are further developments of it. The Brenner School has tended to emphasize more a label uh, which they give themselves, or which they call political Marxism. And in many respects, I, again, I don't have a particular problem with that. It's a lot to do with a context and priority, I would say. But in terms of the original debate, the original debate was between Brenner and Wallerstein. And how do we characterize capitalism by its, uh, you know, its emergence in Western Europe as being the primary factor 
for the extraction of wealth as capital and the production actually of capital in surplus value overseas in a colonized part of the world. That's, that's how the debate came about. Thanks, and thanks for that explanation. Um, I think that one of the points you make in the article is very clear on this is the discussion between free labor and non-free labor or enslaved labor. Uh, you have a point where you argue that the Brenner School tends to see that if labor wasn't free, it could not have been capital that was exploiting it. And I, I wonder, you know, that contributes to your broader discussion around slavery in the article as uh, necessarily being uh, exploited contingently by capital while not being free labor. I think that's a distinction that is uh, and a, a nuance that is lost on a lot of this very one, as you put it, lopsided reading of, of Marxism, particularly on the nature of free or proletarian labor under capital. I wonder if you can explain a little bit more exactly the, the point you were driving at there of trying to understand the context within which enslaved labor could exist and be uh, necessarily concomitant to the rise of capitalism. Absolutely. Um, there is a very good writer on this historical period as a historian, and that's Robin Blackburn. And he's written three good books about um, slavery and the emergence of capitalism. I don't agree with his theoretical summary, and I'll just use that as a point of contrast. So what Robin Blackburn argues is that slavery was extended into the 19th century as a form of primitive accumulation. And of course, he must be talking about the cotton slavery of the United States into the mid 19th century. I'll just reverse it the other way around. I, I think it what, what was primitive accumulation okay, of capital. Primitive accumulation of capital had two main processes. They had others, and they were both violent, these processes. One was looting. You know the sheer robbery of what you know what the British did in India. Okay, they set up an administration to do it, but they were basically it was an administration to rob uh, the people of India. But they also set up production. So what you have is early forms of capitalism in production, and I think that's how I would frame the plantation. It is an early form of capitalist production. I just happened to be rereading with a group of comrades, uh, volume one of Capital, right? And uh, Marx uh, talks about cooperation. I mean, it's sort of inverted commas there because you're not really cooperate, cooperation in the normal sense of the term, like we're willingly working with each other. It, it's capital putting workers together and gaining advantage from their combined labor and then from the combination of labor, enforcing a division of labor. Well, all these characteristics held on the slave, slave plantations. So, I mean, this was capital getting the advantage of combined labor. You can't say it's the same as wage labor, and I would certainly not wish to. I mean, I think what happened was a particularly violent mode of exploitation, but there was also a form of a labor market. And again, this is a slight, I have to say, a slight discrepancy in Marx, I would say, right? Because if you're talking about the emergence of labor power as a commodity, it doesn't have to be only available as free labor. 
it can be made available as captured labor. So it's not free labor, it's violently, people were torn from their homes and murdered on the way and so on. As we know, the Holocaust of enslaved Africans. As they were presented in the Americas, it was as commodities of labor power for sale. Not in the same way as uh, hired labor, because they were sold outright, their bodies were sold, their, their very being was being sold. But it was a form of a commodity market. And so what you had is enslaved labor was bought in order to make a profit and put to work under these very violent conditions on the plantations. So I, I would sort of, it's a sort of like a racially uh, violent form of manufacture, broadly speaking, uh, took place on the plantations. So then the challenge comes, okay, so in terms of Marx's categories, how do you frame this? Okay. And what the challenge is in general, there's a very good phrase from Galliano's book on the open veins of Latin America. Uh, and what he says in that book, in, in this phrase, captures the what about us call of people looking at Marxism and saying, what does it tell us, theorize, conceptualize for us about our condition, right? And what he says is capitalism in its colonial face was not only about free labor. You cannot say what happened to us and our antecessors was free labor. It was always subjugated labor. The formal subjugation has changed from enslaved to neo-colonial colonies on, but we have always been subjugated by capitalism in, in the colonial or imperial face. So the challenge in general terms is for Marxism to explain not only free labor, which I think Marx did extremely well actually, but subjugated labor, how do they fit together? And the basic um, means to do that conceptually, I think was provided also from Latin America. And I think, you know, in parallel in the seventies, it was also happening in relation to Africa. I mean, in particular Walter Rodney, I don't know if he ever used the term, but he certainly used the concept of harsher exploitation of Africans and Europeans, right? Uh, I mean, chapter five, I just happened to also read, read this recently. Chapter five of how Europe underdeveloped Africa couldn't be clearer on this point, actually, that African wage labor and peasants were more exploited than Europeans. Okay, so how do we explain this more exploitation? this even harsher exploitation, even more violent, even more brutal. And actually it was pretty violent and brutal in the factories of England in the first half of the 19th century. And when you go back and read what Marx has to say, I mean, it was pretty brutal there. It was even worse in the colonies is what we're saying. So what's the even worse about? Now, I think that what Marx does is he says by definition, labor power, is that which is owned and sold by the same actor. And that's free labor. But of course, uh, subjugated labor, I mean, the, the owner of the labor power isn't necessarily the person whose labor power it is, right? Could be owned by somebody else. So then we come to how to theorize the slave plantation. Okay, so, um, I mean, I know of two theoretical efforts, or now three actually, that I think are worth looking at. Uh, the first one 
which I think is probably, uh, you know, it was a good effort, was by Abigail Bakan, um, who writes about the plantations. And basically what she argues is that the plantation is a combination, a primitive accumulation, and an absolute surplus value. Now, let's recall, absolute surplus value is the extension of the working day. So capitalists can make more money if they get workers to work longer. They still get the same remuneration, but if they work longer hours, there's more surplus labor for the capitalists. I mean, that definitely does apply to the plantations. I mean, slave laborers have to work 12, 14 hours a day and so on. So, that, that, I mean, let's not discard that. That's true, right? Um, but the other sort of main lever of capital accumulation is known as, from Marx again, is known as relative surplus value. The idea of relative surplus value is that workers are more productive. As, as when workers are more made more productive, primarily it is thought through the use of machinery, then that means that the, what they produce is cheaper, which in turn means if those things that are cheaper are being consumed by the workers, then all workers are cheaper to capital. That's the basic idea. Um, now, it's argued by Brenner in an article in New Left Review in the mid-1970s, that you cannot explain the plantation from the point of view of Marx's two categories of absolute and relative surplus value. Well, he's right and he's wrong. Okay, what, what's right about what he says and what's wrong about it? Well, what's wrong about it is that relative surplus value isn't only about machinery, right? It's about capital organizing production. And actually, the first chapter that Marx explains this is not about machinery, it's about the division of labour. It's about the capitalist taking hold of production, putting workers to work and telling them what to do and organising how they do it. Okay, controlling production, dominating production in a despotic way. Well, that's exactly what happened on the plantations. It wasn't only in the workshop of England in the 18th century, it was in the plantations of Jamaica in the 18th century that was going on. Okay, so that does that actually qualifies it that puts it more on the side of some type of capitalism than not right because this was clearly done for profit i mean they were advertising in the you know coffee houses of england invest your money in a plantation in jamaica and it was for no other reason than the calculus of profit okay so the calculus of profit was always part of it right from the get-go and then the, the second thing that brenner says is you can't have, therefore, uh, the plantations developing relative surplus value. In actual fact, they did. And there was actually also a development of machinery. If you look at the uh, sugar plantations, they developed quite a mechanical means of increasing productivity. But in any case, uh, it, the, the social organization of production is, is one way to increase uh, exploitation through uh, greater productivity. So you have both absolute surplus value and relative surplus value actually did operate on the plantations. They were long hours and they did organize production. So forcing laborers to be more productive while they were working. Okay. But there's a third element, which isn't in Marx, although he knew about it, but he didn't incorporate it theoretically. And that is this element of super exploitation, right? The plantations weren't just a copy of the manufacturing workshops in England at the time. I mean, there was something different about them, and it was this violence. I mean, you know, violence was used as a lever 
to force people to work longer, to work harder. I mean, violence was used to force them to reproduce. I mean, that's a difference, of course, between you know the Caribbean slavery in the 18th century and the US cotton slavery in the 19th century. And so there was a development within this mode of exploitation, if you like. But this none of this is pre-capitalist. I mean, all of it is related to, and it's also about how this fits into the capitalist system overall, right? And so I don't think that Brenner's dismissal of uh, these uh, violent, racially violent early capitalist forms of being pre-capitalist is, is right at all, right? But then we do come to the development into the 19th century of cotton slavery in the US South. And the sort of the key author there is uh, Charlie Post, who writes from a Brennerite uh, perspective. And he says, well, he says, well, as end slave laborers or the slaves, depending on what language you use, then slave laborers were um, fixed at production, right? Therefore, they could not be variable capital, is his argument. And therefore, it couldn't be capitalism. Now, actually, what Post does um, is he actually completely confuses Marx's categories. Okay, so Marx has got two binaries. And it's very important to understand this theoretically, because you can see then how we can apply Marx's theoretical approach to the situation of enslaved African labor, economically at least. I don't claim it explains everything. I wouldn't do that actually. But if you look at uh, from the economic side, okay, so Marx distinguishes between capital which is used to buy labor power and capital which is in, invested in machines and raw materials. Why does he do that? Right? Because it's only the workers who produce new value. So the capital which is invested to buy use of labor power is, if you like, indirectly the source of the new value. And he calls that variable capital. And then constant capital, the variable capital expands. Constant capital just passes through. It's reproduced, recreated in the act of production. Right? That's really important. That is a crucial theoretical advance that Marx makes. Okay. That's in volume one of capital. In volume two of capital, he makes a distinction which is not particular to Marx, which is common, a commonplace actually in, in if you like, bourgeois accounting. Right, which is a distinction between fixed capital and circulating capital, which is about, it's not, it, that's not physical either, by the way, it's about how much these different uh, components of capital contribute within one turnover of capital cycle. So to give you an example, raw materials are normally thought of as being circulating capital, right? Because the capitalist buys them, they go into produce stuff. Think of the cotton going in to uh, make the yarn, circulating capital got the yarn is sold capitalist buys more cotton uh, and as he sells he keeps on through right that would be called uh, circulating capital on the other hand the machines that are used or the, the infrastructure of the cotton mill is not circulating it's more fixed its value is passed over bit by bit as the machine wears down as the capital invested in the factory gets used up okay so it, it's a value distinction. But what we have now is two different value distinctions, one between constant and variable, and one between fixed and circulating, right? Now, why am I going into all of this, right? Marx looks at labor power as variable capital 
which circulates. Okay, so the workers have paid money uh, after they've done a week or a month production, what they produce is sold, and then they're paid again, again and so on. So uh, they, are, they are the source of new value, and also the capital invested in the circulating that. And he's also got fixed constant capital, which is the factory and the machinery. But he's also got this third category of capital which circulates, but is constant. I mean, and that's a play on words, but you get the idea. Raw materials, basically, and the auxiliaries. Okay. Now, that leaves a fourth category. Okay. And Marx doesn't entertain this, so why should he? Because he only actually really does look at a wage labour. But if you think of enslaved labour, there's a lot of peculiarities from a purely capitalist point of view about enslaved labour, right? Because it's both labour and capital. They invested in human beings in order to make more money out of having them as capital assets, right? In that sense, they were fixed capital, in that sense, right? But they were also the source of new value because they were human beings who created new value. The enslaved laborer created value when they worked. They created surplus value. They created profit. Okay, so you have this unused but you know logically possible, hypothetically possible. In reality, they were fixed variable capital. Okay, so what you've got is they were fixed in production. Right, but they produce new value, and if you think of the relationship with the southern U.S. in you know in the in the nineteenth century, I mean the cotton plantations were not just a side issue for nineteenth century capitalism. Right, they were the absolute center of the world accumulation of capital for 50, 60 years, okay? So, I mean, if you read a book like Industry and Empire, uh, which is a famous book by Hogsbawm, you know, I come more from the British side of this, of course, right? So he's talking about, um, you know, this huge amount of cotton coming into Britain as the basis of British industry. You talk about the Industrial Revolution, the leading sector was cotton spinning and then weaving one side down the chain, and the production of cotton on the plantations on the other. So from that point of view, from its integration in the world system, this was part of the capitalist commodity production chain. Okay. So um, my view, going from the, like the 18th century to the 19th century, is there was a development of the plantation and of slavery uh, from a, an early if you like, the inverted commas more primitive form, uh, although that term, you know, it's got a negative connotation, obviously, an early form, right? Uh, to, to, the, to a sector which was the crucial sector in the whole industrial revolution. So how you get away with calling that pre-capitalist is, and also on basis of misunderstanding and misrepresenting the categories of Marx's uh, analysis of capital. I don't know, right? Now, so, so that's the post version of the Brenner broad thesis as applied to US uh, development of capitalism in America, basically, is that how he would frame it. But of course, it's the development of capitalism in Britain as well, how I would tend to look at it. Um, now, there, there has been a, a more recent uh, contribution by John Clegg, who uh, I think is actually right. He actually spots this point, right? 
about, you know, in actual fact, enslaved laborers can be seen as fixed capital, but also creating new value. Okay, so he actually makes this point quite rightly, and it's there in the literature. But I think it, to be honest, it destroys both's um, position, but they don't seem to see it like that because they both agree with the broader Brenner thesis, right? Uh, but what it shows you is that the biggest boom in the first half of the 19th century could not have taken place without this tremendous contribution of African Americans, right? Of subjugated enslaved laborers, right? So, yeah, so it does kind of like, it, it makes this inside outside thing. You know, this is, this is what people today rightly call racial capitalism, right? It is embedded, it's not external to, the reproduction of racism was completely functional, embedded, reproduced by the capitalist mode of production. It's not pre-capitalist, not external. It's an essential component of capitalism. I, I find that very convincing. And I, I find it, as you mentioned, really difficult to imagine someone not being convinced by that. And that is to say, I'm curious why there is this persistent Eurocentric interpretation of uh, the rise of capitalism itself, specifically centered on the internal, as you mentioned, class conflict can be a part and it is a part of the rise of capitalism, but it is the uh, the specific historiographical reading of it exclusively in Europe that that limits any kind of analysis of capitalism. And I think as you pointed out, rightfully so, in reading capital or reading Marx with uh, with people who are not European and trying to think about how it relates to the conditions of capitalism in the global South in particular, it, it becomes odd to assert nevertheless that there is this kind of Eurocentric origin of capitalism exclusively. So I think that is, is building to my question of why this Brenner thesis, why it continues to be uh, so dogmatically cling to, and there is a, a recalcitrance to let go of of this Brenner thesis, and why instead, as you're putting forward a, a reading of of capital itself, of of Marx that is nuanced, that can take into account these processes at a global scale, can instead help to uh, elucidate elements of the rise of capitalism that are not limited exclusively and spatio-temporally in Europe itself. Yeah, that's good. Um, there are two or three strands to this. Okay, um, I think whenever um, oppressed uh, people come into contact with Marxism, I mean, this goes from the national liberation movements to African-Americans uh, to people in Britain who uh, face racism and so on. How, how does it work for us? It's an obvious question to be asked. And I think um, something like the theory of super exploitation is bound to arise in that context. Because the question is how is exploitation combined with oppression and more authoritarian, differentially oppressed groups are gonna ask that question. It's also the same for, for women in actual fact, right? How comes 
I don't know how, how where you start it. 200 years or more into the virtuous capitalist system, we still see that systemically women are paid less than men. Okay, about a third less, generally speaking. Okay, so these are very deep, uh, structurally embedded reproductions of inequality within the working class. Okay, and there are, there's a couple of starting points one can take from this, right? One is how did the idea of super exploitation itself arise? Uh, which I, I, I've investigated, and as far as my research goes, I mean Walter Rod, uh, sorry Walter Rodney's generation and Marini's generation came converged on this. Okay, in in a sort of great movement of the left in the 1970s after 1968 across the world, this was this general leap forward in Marxist thought, and they converged on very similar sort of ideas, um, and. It's hard, it was quite hard to see where the particular term and concept came from before that generation. I mean, basically, you think, oh, it must have been Lenin, I guess, you know, and the previous big leap forward generation, which the classical theories of imperialism in Lenin's time. Lenin kind of used the idea, but didn't, you know, he didn't really focus on it. And between those two, what I found was that the idea crystallized. In, in the discussions between African-Americans moving towards communism and Marxism and the communist international. And I mean, this is um, not in the article you're referring to, it's like a subsequent development, but it is very interesting. So I think there's a new biography coming out of Claude McKay, uh, who was, went to Russia, Soviet Union then about 1919, I think 1920, early on anyway, he worked his way the very interesting thing about the early Communist Party in the US is that the, the African Americans who were drawn to the revolution, the ideas in the Soviet Union, the ideas of Marxism, had an obstacle, which was the white-led US Communist Party, who didn't really think, you know, give much attention to their situation and subordinated it, as socialists generally did, to the economic struggle of the working class, right? So they're sort of like marginalized, both practically and theoretically. So what happened in the 1920s was the leaders in the Soviet Union, the Communist International, the Bolshevik generation, had to bypass the leadership of the Communist Party in the US uh, to make contact with the Af African-American revolutionaries and vice versa. So they independently kind of like found each other. Uh, people like Claude McKay sort of were the pioneers of that. And that process went on for a few years and they were developing, okay, so how, how do we understand racism in the United States? And there was a debate in 1928 at the, in and around the Congress of the Comintern. And from those discussions arose the concept of super exploitation. Okay, so which is to say, you know, the African American is more exploited than the white worker. We're not denying that white workers are exploited. But what we're saying is our situation is even worse, okay? And we're saying that in relation to not only the working class in the North, in the Capital US, but also in terms of sharecropping and so on in the South, right? So it was a, it was a theoretical step forward because it allowed for a conceptualization in actual fact, in, in the specifics that theoretical advance in my opinion which maybe we can see with hindsight wasn't really recognized at the time 
because it was overlaid at that time with the sort of the Trotsky-Stalin dispute that was going on. The, the main uh, protagonist, Harry uh, Haywood, of, uh, involved at the time, was a major proponent of the Black Belt thesis, uh, which saw a big turn in an organizing sense towards the South, towards uh, the Communist Party began to take seriously under, under direction from the Comintern, under orders, basically, but also under pressure from below, from its own you know, periphery, if you like, of Black Cader. Uh, to take the black struggle seriously. And they started to do so. And as they did so, I mean, huge impact, actually. But um, so the origins of labor super exploitation come from there, as far as concepts concerned, as far as I've discovered. And then they were adopted in the later theoretical generation. Right? So um, I think it's enormously important for understanding the world today. Um, because what you've got is globalized labor super exploitation. I mean, and now we come to your question in the end, right? Um, which is why is it hard? Uh, because uh, if you like academic Marxism centered in, in the white uh, European North has not had to confront these conditions, right? It, overall, it's lived through conditions of, there are exceptions, fascism, but overall it's lived in conditions of relative privilege. And so the whole idea of needing to theorize the question of oppression with exploitation and how they intersect has been you know, of marginal interest to the more privileged sections, whereas it is actually the fundamental interest of more oppressed sections. And so with the neoliberal globalization period, what we have is the majority of the working class are in the global south, in particular in China, but also now in other parts. And, you know, the race to the bottom has been on now for the last generation. And so, you know, I mean, for example, there are important studies which use the concept of labor super exploitation. And the thing is, it's no longer minority. You can't say to the minority, the majority of the working class, right, in, on a world scale. So, I mean, John Smith's book on imperialism in the 21st century, Zach Cope's two books, both uh, try to improve the concept of labor exploitation to explain the world as it is today. Uh, so it's an extremely contemporary concept. You can't explain the world system uh, and the relocation, not only of raw material production, but of manufacturing production in the global south without some kind of concept along these lines. So I completely agree with those theses. I think they're completely right to take that approach. Um, uh, again, coming back to your question, uh, there is there is a connection with Lenin, in actual fact. Um, in, I mean, Lenin's writings around imperialism in the First World War, he only got, he only had time because he was pretty busy. Uh, he only wrote a popular outline. I mean, what, what Lenin didn't have time to do is to say, here's capital, here's what's going on today, here's how theoretically the internal theoretical development, right? What he wrote was a popular outline, but he also what he also did is he focused on the politics of it, right? And he said, you know, what imperialism does is it affects the working class in the imperialist countries, and he says, you know, imperialism in the split in socialism is an absolutely necessary counterpart to his book Imperialism: The Higher Stage of Capitalism, because in imperialism in the split in socialism, he's got 
he's less constrained politically by by the censor in Russia and so on. He's much more direct about it. And he said, look, imperialism generates this split in the working class. And in the end, we get, in Western Europe at least, we get three layers within the working class. So you get, the, the workers are still in their mass, still exploited and oppressed. But without a doubt, there's a layer, which he calls the labor aristocracy, which imperialism has got enough money to buy off. You know, they're bought off. They're not only, if you like, subjectively, but objectively, they're aligned on the other side. They have material interest uh, by backing the imperial system. And then he says, okay, so and then you get a layer of vacillates in between. And his his interest were, was very political. So he's saying Kautsky belongs to this middle layer. I happen to think that, that Kautskyism, modern Eurocentric Marxism, is actually Kautskyism, basically. I mean, they're kind of like an oscillating layer. The radical petty bourgeoisie, generally speaking, and I'm one of them, to be honest, right, of the imperialist countries, right, uh, have choices and can oscillate. Uh, but the majority of the working class, uh, in, uh, you know, we're going back into crisis. So this, these are not like, these, these characteristics are historically developed and will historically change. But, but during the Second World War, quite significant sections of the working class you know, the system worked. Uh, I mean, in Britain, we've had a national health service since the 1940s. I mean, the, the, the social contract actually is at the point of break, I have to say, uh, but it has uh, pertained for the last 70 years. So it's not only the sort of the absolute privilege of the labor aristocracy, which I think is still there, but there have been changes in the, it's, if you like, the, the scope of privilege and, uh, you know, it has to be said that the system has worked for enough people for enough of the time in the countries of the global north. I mean, I think the US is probably more sharply polarized than here, but it's happening here now as well, for sure. I mean, the crisis is on us, basically. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent explanation of why this problem continues to persist. And I, I, I find it relevant in terms of discussing you know the labor aristocracy or discussing super exploitation to to even as we started this off by drawing it back to the Brenner thesis to see it generally as a a reaction to that expansion of Marxism beyond just an original Eurocentric perspective that there is going to be a kind of uh, even even Rodney's book when he discusses Kotskyism for for example you know putting it into conversation with the development of Marxism and Marxist thought coming out of the global South, seeing the need to sort of reestablish the uh, intellectual claiming of this of this theory as a Eurocentric or European discipline. And that obviously severely limits our capacities for theorizing. As you put it, you know, you have a section at the end where you say that the continued denial of racial capitalism uh, it, it continues to contribute to a blind spot in our in our theorization in general. And I, I was wondering just with, you know, sort of thinking about taking this perspective in totality, your reworking or reconsideration of the theory of primitive accumulation itself by the end of this article and discussing uh, capitalist slavery, as you, as you put it, in thinking of it as uh, uh, 
reversing the analysis of Robin Blackburn instead of just putting it as an expanded primitive accumulation. Instead, I think you discuss it as a para-manufacture system instead. So I wonder if you can discuss that distinction a little bit more and also relate in general to how perhaps we we do need a re-theorization of primitive accumulation beyond just the traditional view of the establishment of capitalism by the enclosure system in England that then has replicated itself. It you know, obviously hasn't replicated itself exactly that way uh, throughout history in different countries. Yeah, I, this is a really interesting area. And it's obviously also in the last sort of theoretical generation been widely adopted the idea of an extension of primitive accumulation, a sort of a continuing primitive accumulation. And I mean, David Harvey is the one who sort of like uh, branded that, if you like, it's associated with his uh, concept of imperialism uh, or the concept he had of imperialism, because I think he doesn't even like to use the concept anymore. I mean, I, and I'll start with Harvey, actually, because I think he overextends this idea, to be honest with you. He broadens it to an extent which makes it like explain everything and almost nothing. Um, you know, you know, people who you have got a privileged jobs like airline pilots, their pensions becoming under attack is an example of continuing primitive accumulation, I think was one of his examples, right? I mean, the, the thing is, I think it's overused, right? And I'll say this in a couple of ways. I'll try to give a couple of examples. Um, I, I have done an, a lot with uh, communities. I mean, as a, as a member of a collective, the Columbia Solidarity Campaign, we, we have you know, my close uh, comrades are working with communities in Colombia who are heavily displaced by mega mining projects, like Serajon, for example, the coal mining project, right? And some of the features which Marx explained under primitive accumulation of capital are going on today. With that, there is no doubt, right? Clearances, you know, indigenous communities, just African, Colombian communities in this case, and Campesian communities cleared off their land, right? In order to make way for big multinational corporations, extractive, projects and violence is used. I mean, in Colombia, pretty systematically used paramilitary and state violence to clear the way for these big capital investment projects, right? Now, I would conceptualize that as a moment within modern imperialism, okay? Because the, it does establish a precondition for capital accumulation, but it is not yet capital accumulation, right? It's the basis for which it can take place. In order to understand how profitable these mines or these oil fields are, you have to look at what makes them profitable, which is the theory of rent, the fact that their production costs are so much lower than the price of their commodities can get on, on the world market. Okay, and that is, to do with the critical political economy of extractivism in modern capitalism, in modern imperialism, right? So that the motive for these crimes is clearly these massive profits which these extractive companies can make, and they do make massive profits. It's a, it's a particular niche of British capitalism that we, we don't have an awful lot of manufacturing industry. We've got two of the five biggest oil companies in the world. We've got about three or four of the seven biggest mining companies in the world, right? So the British establishment 
and there is a parallel with Canada, interestingly, have developed these sort of niche capacity uh, to facilitate high level uh, extractivism, very focused enclave sort of extractivism. Right? So for me, this is a, you know, it's a very, very relevant point. And you can say this is a continuation of, you know, uh, pre-capitalist uh, primitive accumulation, but I kind of think it slightly misses the point, right? This is a characteristic of modern imperialism, all the technology and so on. I mean, they have fantastic technology, actually, for what they're doing, right? It is accompanied by really awful, normally subcontracted, so it's deniable, but it's very, you know, the functionality of it is very clear, right? Violence against uh, poor communities who just happen to get in the way, who end up with their kids being poisoned, their rivers being polluted, uh, you know, and driven into the belts of misery in, in the cities and so on. So I don't see this, you know, I see this as characteristic of modern imperialism and extractivism. Uh, and so I don't know so much as if I'm contributing a great deal to the theory of, beyond what I've already said, right, the theory of primitive accumulation. I kind of like, do want to shift the debate a little bit, right, which is how do these violent forms of accumulation contribute to capital accumulation today, right, within the context of, re, of extending Marx, I would say, the theory of surplus value. As it happens, I think Marx, uh, I do critique Marx on certain points, right? Or, or see, seek a critical development of him because the guy was a genius. So what's the point of critiquing a genius, right? But his theory of rent is crucial to understanding modern imperialism. Uh, Marx explained how monopoly works in terms of getting hold of the land and how that can generate extra surplus value and surplus profits. And this goes back to a point I was making earlier. I mean, Lenin understood Marx's theory of rent very well, by the way, right? And um, I don't, I can't give you a direct textual connection, but I believe that was at the back of uh, Lenin's mind when he started writing about super profits and theorism, right? It's a way of extracting even higher uh, degree of capital accumulation, surplus profits in, in Marx, super profits in Lenin, from this sort of extraction of raw materials. And it's a combination of, you know, it adds a level of violence and cheating to, if you like, normal capitalist accumulation, which I don't think there's anything pre-capitalist about it, right? I think it's the history of the 20, 20th and 21st century, uh, you know, the, the struggle over oil in the Middle East, the, destruction of two-thirds of the world in order to you know send the whole world into climate catastrophe these are very topical themes right and so yeah uh, not, and that's a fairly broad answer to your problem but i would like to shift the debate into seeing how we can critically develop marx's theory of how capitalism as a developing and expanding mode of production works rather than if you like the pre-capitalism um I have seen some material from, you know, written in the States, I think, distinguishing between exploitation and expropriation, right? And I do think that's quite fertile, but you, you have to go beyond the words. You know, we can give it, you know, we can give things a label. I think we've explained it. It doesn't explain it, right? Um, the expropriation of nature is a major, major lever of capital accumulation. 
and we can see the disputes right now between Biden and Saudi Arabia. It's also a major dynamic in world politics, right? Who gets to decide what the price of oil will be and things like this? Well, actually, as it happens, Marx's theory can give us a very good explanation of what's happening in the dynamics of the world oil industry today. Uh, and it is to do with how rent becomes surplus profits. Thanks, and and that, I think that's a great answer on that point, especially with relating it to, uh, you know, I've read a little bit of the discussions in the review of African political economy on uh, David Harvey and his concept of accumulation by dispossession and how it it ultimately doesn't contribute to a, a useful understanding of imperialism and and even as you pointed out, has led him to uh, deny imperialism in some capacities today. So I think I agree with you in terms of how a useful understanding of that concept uh, can help us grasp better the way in which imperialism works, the way in which uh, flow of, of uh, value works on a global scale. And, and as you put it, as super exploitation works. Unfortunately, his definition of that subject doesn't help and sometimes can be so ambiguous as to obscure exactly what exploitation is. But I think you have put it very well in terms of trying to investigate a little bit further the relationship of primitive accumulation and super exploitation in particular. And the very last question I'd like to ask is, uh, throughout this article, you make references to uh, Roy Mauro Marini. And I'm curious if you can uh, very briefly, and this could be the subject of a whole episode on its own, but discuss a little bit about how this contribution and in particular, this engagement with Brenner and the school of thought that has emerged from Brenner uh, in many ways is, is deriving from the contributions that Marini made uh, to analyzing in particular the space between Brenner, Wallerstein and dependency theory, how Marini made a contribution that was sort of trying to not close the gap, but, but provide an answer that could go beyond this debate through the analysis of super exploitation. And as well, he has a bit of a discussion of unequal trade as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I do agree with you. I think it's completely worth another session. Uh, monthly review uh, bringing out, uh, hopefully in about a month's time, uh, Marini's main book, uh, most important book, which is The Dialectics of Dependency. And uh, so Amanda Latimer, translated it and she's written a very good uh, introduction to it. So that would make it a great topic, I think. Um, so Marini says, uh, Latin American workers were more exploited in the sense that they worked very long hours. They were worked uh, to exhaustion at an early age. So it's not exactly slavery, but if you like a continuation of colonial and neo-colonial type conditions of subjugation and um, paid very low wages. So these are sort of three main characteristics that he said, and this is uh, super exploitation. And what he says is, if you want to understand how we developed capitalism in Latin America, we have to look at what happened in the mid 19th century. That's his sort of really starting point. And he says, we basically provided raw materials and food to the expansion of capitalism in England. So when Marx writes about the turn towards relative surplus value, which he does sort of as a sort of pivot moment in 
in in Marx's uh, treatment around about 1850, 1860, where machine industry really kicks in, right? Well, that's the, the point at which England begins to draw more and more uh, foodstuffs and the raw materials from Latin America and elsewhere in the world to feed, to fuel. And so what Marini says is, well, these cheap products weren't only about mechanization then, were they? They were about cheap labor, right? So the, the capitalists sending this stuff overseas supplied it cheaply. The only way they made a profit was by making sure their workers were cheap as well. So it's a kind of like he's, he's trying to bring in the, the reality of cheap labor production or labor power below the value that it has in the imperialist countries uh, and explaining how, you know, how capitalism underdeveloped Latin America. So what Marini's contribution was, was a sort of a foundational uh, contribution in what's known as the Marxist theory of dependency. So the, the dependency school was fairly broad brush, I would say, because, you know, in general, critical social science, and we're talking about Latin America, but I do think that there were very similar developments elsewhere in the, in the global south. You know, we're basically saying, uh, you know, trying to throw back the claim that the underdevelopment was due to internal deficiencies or backwardness or, you know, which in the end always come out with some kind of racial type of uh, explanation. And what they were looking for is, no, we're poor because you made us poor and you're rich because we made you rich. So it's a relational, it's relational. And, you know, before Marini's contribution, this was already on the table from dependency theory, right? From the bourgeois wing, um, which basically took this view and were deeply disappointed that the West, uh, well, the United States didn't support Latin America after the Second World War. And so, you know, it said, you know, we're, we're gonna have to find a solution which we develop uh, as a periphery, this sort of satellite periphery idea comes in this period. And there was a sort of a radical wing also, and there was an openly reformist wing. Uh, and the openly reformist wing, the main sort of organic intellectual was Cardoso. So Cardoso ends up attacking Marini. It's interesting because Marini's thesis was really strong. I mean, you know, and Cardoso tries to drive him out. I mean, both in terms of ideas, but even by institutional means, pushing his, him out of universities and so on, right? And so you had two wings of dependency theory, you know, with the radicals in between, if you like that, which is the openly reformist wing and the revolutionary wing. And what ha has happened in, in, this is all taking place in Spanish and Portuguese, and, you know, okay, so we'd have to learn another language to find out about it in some way. But, I mean, to, to their credit, Monthly Review reflected some of this in English. But I would say in the Anglosphere, what people read was uh, Cardoso and Frank, and they didn't bother to discover Marini or didn't know about Marini. I mean, ignorance has got different different types of ignorance. And one is, nobody told you, so why should you know? And the other one is, well, you're pontificating about this stuff, so maybe you should go and find out a bit about it, right? Um, and so uh, orthodox Eurocentric Marxism is incredible. I've, I've got a stack of 
books, and we've got piles of articles, books, right, critiquing dependency theory from about 1979 onwards, from a Eurocentric perspective. And that's kind of like where, I mean, it wasn't only Brenner, there's a whole load of them, right? The mainstream Marxists all came in the same. And what they actually did was they critiqued dependency theory on its weak points. They found weak points and they pushed on those, they pushed those buttons, right? Rather than taking on board the strength of the core thesis. And the strength of the core thesis was really straightforward, right? We are poor because you make us poor. And not only historically with colonialism, but under things like unequal terms of trade, as you mentioned, right? Uh, other mechanisms like profits, <laughs> straightforward profit repatriation, uh, interest payments on loans, these three main mechanisms, right, of value transfer from the global south to the global north. Okay. So it's not only looting of colonialism, these are modern, everyday business as usual under the IMF, World Bank, etc., now World Trade Organization. These are all normal uh, commercial operations, right? Okay. But the result is maintaining under development. So Okay, so what Eurocentric Marxists tended to do is to say, yeah, but what about your own ruling class? You need a class analysis of what's going on internally in your countries. And they would say, and there's not enough uh, class analysis, and it's too much at the level of circulation and trade again, and not enough about production and class, right? And of course, with some winds of dependency theory, the more reformist or, or if you like radical wing, there was a grain of truth in that, right? But they should have made the effort to look for the Marxist wing of dependency theory on which that criticism just not holds whatsoever. Of course, Marini's analysis is rooted in a Marxist analysis of social relations of production as they affected the working class in Latin America and Latin America's what I'm trying to say is he he had a holistic production and circulation. He was very well formed politically, he read capital all the way through all the classics and so on, right? Uh, and at the same time, he just wasn't repeating them for the situation of Latin America. He he developed them and pushed Marxism forward uh, with this with this concept in a theoretical framework, not just a term of an atomized concept, but within the framework of how Europe and the United States continue to underdevelop capitalism in Latin America. And so, you know, the dependency school all agree that they were poor because of colonialism and its consequences, but then they had different explanations of the contemporary mechanisms. And Marini provided the Marxist uh, well, not only him, but he was the foundational author, I think, for, for a Marxist interpretation of it. Thank you so much. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, I'd love to have a, a further conversation on Marini in the future, because I think we can dedicate a whole discussion to it. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining and having this discussion. I think this was really good um, in terms of contextualizing your article and the discussion around the Brenner thesis within really the a lot of the broader debates within Marxism itself um, and where it's heading in terms of an analysis of imperialism. 
So thanks so much for joining us. Um, before before leaving, do you mind just mentioning where uh, listeners can find your work, uh, where they can find your activism as well, um, and any kind of connections that can be made there? Yeah, I mean, I need to uh, publish in more uh, prominent places, but if you go on ResearchGate or Academia, you will find my, my published articles. Uh, not yet a book. We're looking forward to that sometime, I hope. Um, the, the collectives that I work with on Latin America, it's the 12th of October platform, La Plataforma 12 de Octubre, and that's on Facebook. Um, on Sri Lanka, the most important groups in my in my experience are the Bremen in Germany Human Rights Association and the Dublin uh, group in Ireland on Sri Lanka. And the most important documentation you will find on the International Human Rights Association website of Bremen, uh, including in particular um, their reports about the genocide of Elam Tamils. Um, and I work closely with them on, on that material. And then in terms of South Africa, we could actually have a much longer discussion about super exploitation in South Africa, which maybe after Marini we could come back to. But um, there's, what's the best stuff to look at? I mean, I do recommend uh, reading uh, contemporary reports, especially around the, the strike around Maritana. And I, I, I've written about that, but I mean, other people who've got closer knowledge of Maritana have written more extensively about it, but that's still really crucial turning point uh, up to today, the massacre in 2012, 10 years ago. Uh, uh, you know, its aftermath is still with us. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, politically it was a big turning point, but economically you can see the system keeps rolling on with the exploitation, basically. So, so yeah, look for stuff on Maritana, I would say. Excellent. And I hope we can also have a discussion on that um, in the future, because that's a subject that I, I'm very interested in as well. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Andy. And we'll, we'll definitely have you back on in the future for more discussions. Thank you. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. Take care.